0: During my undergraduate degree at the University of British Columbia, where I studied philosophy and English literature, I had the opportunity to study for a year at the University of Copenhagen in the city of Copenhagen in Denmark. And it was an opportunity for me to study philosophy at the Soren Kierkegaard Institute as I wanted to go there and to learn more about this Danish philosopher. And in so many ways, it was an unbelievable opportunity. I got to go to Denmark to learn more about their language and their culture. I got to travel throughout Europe, and I'd never been to Europe before. And I got to make new friends, some of whom became incredibly good friends over that year. And one way it wasn't great was in my faith. That year became a really hard year for me in my relationship with God. That prior to going to Denmark, I'd been a new Christian just for three or four years. Um, And in going to Denmark beforehand, I'd been engaged actively in my church community, actively attending, serving with the youth group. And for some reason, when I went to Denmark, I only went to church twice over those 10 months. I wasn't as actively engaged in reading scripture every day as I had, and it felt like my faith was really falling to the wayside. When I eventually traveled back to Vancouver and re-engaged with my church community and started serving again, I was really confused and I was feeling guilty why had my faith fallen to the wayside for that whole year? What had happened? Is it that my faith hadn't rooted inside of me? Was something wrong with my faith? Was something wrong with me? And I wondered, I asked this question is, do I care? Do I care about God? Do I care about church? And do I care about this new Christianity thing that I thought I cared about? I was asking the question do I care? we're here at 10th in a sermon series called Frail Faith. If you feel like your faith is weak for whatever reason, and you want it to be strong, but you're just not there, then this sermon series is for you. And over the course of this sermon series, we're gonna be looking at some different topics and areas of our lives where we can feel like our faith is weak. Things like doubt and fear, and today we're gonna look at spiritual apathy. Our passage today is from Jonah 2. Maybe some of you know it well. It's a prayer that Jonah offers from the stomach of a great fish—a really interesting place to pray from. And Jonah prays from a great fish, but before he does so, Jonah is a prophet. So that means that he's called out for hearing and for speaking God's voice. And God, he- Jonah hears from God a message that he's supposed to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which is the major military and economic power at the time. And Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh to preach this message of repentance, pointing towards God's mercy, that the Ninevites and the Assyrians are Jonah's people enemy. And He doesn't want to preach this message to them. So rather than going to Nineveh, he turns in the opposite direction, and he goes towards Tarshish, which is in the south of modern Spain, on a boat. And when he's on this boat, God pursues him through a storm. And at one point, the sailors, as the storm begins to get worse and worse and worse, begin to fear for their lives, and they're throwing things overboard, and they're trying to figure out, how do they calm this storm? Is there anything that they can do? And so eventually they go downstairs to the basement of the ship and they see that Jonah, on this ship, is not only not fearing for his own life or the lives of the other sailors, but he's actually sleeping at the bottom of the boat. That's right. And they wake Jonah up and he gets up and he says, oh yeah, the storm, yeah, that's my fault. God is pursuing me in the midst of the sea. And these sailors who don't know God and don't know Jonah actually do everything that they can to try and save Jonah. Because Jonah says, the only way you can stop the storm is if you throw me overboard. And they really try and do everything they can to save Jonah. At some point, they realize there's nothing more that they can do. And with Jonah's advice, they actually do throw him overboard. And in the sea, Jonah is swallowed by a giant fish or a whale. He's in the belly of this giant fish for three days. At the end of which, he prays this prayer. From Jonah 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You, God, hurled me into the depths into the very heart of the sea. And the current swirled about me, all your waves, waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards the holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed has wrapped itself around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in Forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. To those who cling to worthless idols, turn turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Jonah is a great picture of spiritual apathy. We hear Jonah right at the beginning, God has turned towards him and asked him to do something. We see, what does Jonah do? Turns in the opposite direction and runs away. We may ask, Jonah, do you care about your relationship with God? We hear God asking him to go to the people of Nineveh to offer a message of repentance, which leads to God's mercy. What does he do? Goes in the opposite direction. Jonah, do you even care about the Ninevites? On the sea, on a boat, in the middle of a life-threatening storm, with his life on the line and the sailor's life on the line, where do we see Jonah? The bottom of the boat, fast asleep. Jonah, do you care? Do you care about those other sailors who actually care about you? Do you care about God who's trying to get your attention? We could ask of Jonah the same thing that I was asking about myself when I came back from Denmark. Do you care? And that was a huge question that I was asking for over six months. God, do I care? I think I care. But this whole year of my life seemed to point to something else. Do I care? It was in reading Augustine, who was an early Christian from the fourth to fifth centuries, which helped me to make sense of my spiritual life with God in that season. And Augustine would have said that, in fact, I do care, but he would have said that I had a disordered heart. I do love God, but I also love lots of other things as well. In that season, tendencies of my own life and my heart began to creep back, like, my desire to be affirmed and to seen by others and to be in the cool and popular crowd and to make friends, that these are all things that I love that actually in that season began to become greater priorities than my love for God. Augustine would say that I had a disordered heart. I think he would say the same of Jonah. As we see in his prayer, there are glimpses of Jonah's love for God and even eventually at the bottom of of the sea, a turn towards God. But you see also in him his love for his own people and his love for his own life, that Jonah and I both did love God, but we also loved lots of other things as well, that we had a disordered heart. So now I think it's helpful for us to offer a definition of spiritual apathy that we can kind of hold on to throughout this sermon. So spiritual apathy doesn't mean that we don't care at all. Instead, it's a mild to major sense of indifference about God or the core things that God cares about, which is caused primarily by a disordered heart, loving other things over and above God himself. So if you are here today and you feel a little bit like Jonah or maybe a little bit like I did coming back from Denmark, asking the question, do I care? Or feeling like you have a dull and disengaged spirituality with God, and you want to have a life and a faith that is fully alive, then this is the sermon series for you. And we're going to talk about some of the ways that Jonah, from the very bottom of the sea, tries to re-engage his faith and his life. And we'll see whether that works in the end. But let's look today at honesty and at experiencing God's mercy. So let's look first at honesty. From the bottom of the sea, from the bottom of a whale's stomach, from the bottom of his career, from the bottom of his relationship with God, Jonah has literally and figuratively hit rock bottom in his life. Jonah stops running, and he turns to God. And for the first time, he starts talking to God. And we see in these words a sense of anger and frustration towards God, even blaming God for what's happened to him. We see this in verse 3 and 4. You, God, hurled me into the depths of the sea, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, and yet I will look again towards your holy temple." We see God, or we see Jonah in two places, blaming God for what has happened. The first one, he says, you have hurled me into the depths. God didn't hurl Jonah in the depths. The sailors hurled Jonah in the depths. And actually, Jonah asked them to hurl him into the depths. And then a little bit later, he says, I have been banished from your sight. God didn't banish Jonah. Jonah ran away. And in fact, God was pursuing Jonah on the sea in the midst and through a storm. And we may think of this and say, Jonah, this is pretty dramatic. Why are you blaming God for your own problems? Come on. Take responsibility for your own life and get on with it. But actually, this is a turning point for Jonah. This is the first time in the whole book that Jonah talks to God. God has talked to Jonah, Jonah has talked even to the sailors, but the only thing he's done in his relationship with God so far is turn and run. And in the rock bottom places of his life, he stops running and he turns back to God. And even with blame and frustration and anger towards God, for the first time, he opens up honestly. And honesty is one of those key tools in our lives, especially to contradict or to counteract spiritual apathy. Uche Anzakor wrote a book on spiritual apathy, especially in the Christian life. And he says this, "'Apathy is a sickness from which we need healing. As with other illnesses, brutal honesty about our symptoms is critical for recovery. Imagine sitting with a doctor and lying about your symptoms, or simply remaining silent. Or imagine the doctor keeping the truth of your illness from you. How can you move forward towards healing if you don't know what's really wrong? Honesty is essential if you're ever going to get better. Honesty for the Christian must take the form of confession. It must not just be towards God, but also towards other believers." And for Jonah, he does open up honestly in his relationship with God. But we also need to do so in the context of others as well. And this is actually a blind spot in Jonah's own life, that we see him actually running away from his relationship with God and running away from others, rather than opening up in the context of others. And for me, in my own personal experience, there have been places, many places where I've opened up in honesty towards God but I found it immensely helpful to have spaces of community where I can open up honestly, begin to see and to feel things that maybe I didn't realize were there, that perhaps were buried, but were impacting my relationship with God. And for me, there are two places where I especially experience these. The first is in spiritual direction. In spiritual direction, my spiritual director sits in and for about an hour listens in on my relationship with God. And I often come in and I feel like a bundle of twine filled with emotions and motives and thoughts and questions. And I just start to talk. As I start to talk, he begins to kind of pull on some of those threads of my life. And because I'm an extremely cognitive person, I would much rather think about a problem than feel about a problem. Maybe some of you are similar. He helpfully forces me to pay attention to my emotions and God's emotions towards me. He asks me questions like, how did you feel about that? Or how do you think God felt about you in that? And as I begin to explore some of those feelings, because I'm so cognitively driven, I often begin to discover that I feel things towards God or other people that maybe I hadn't even realized, and it was impacting my relationship with them. I remember one circumstance where I was sharing with him about something that I felt about in my relationship with God that I hadn't originally realized was there. And I felt a sense of anger and frustration towards God that was leading and impacting my relationship with God. That sometimes in the context of community, we can begin to realize things that we are experiencing or thinking or feeling that are significantly impacting our relationship with others, but also our relationship with God. And for me, spiritual direction is one of those places. Another one in my life that I've had for over 10 years has been spiritual friendship. I have a group of four people in my life who sometimes I meet with individually, sometimes we meet as a group, who we listen to each other's lives and to our relationships with God, and I remember one circumstance in particular. Uh, we had all gathered together, but we had dispersed afterwards. We had dinner and we hung out, we connected, but afterwards I was sitting on my car with a good friend, and I was sharing about a really painful circumstance. And as I began to share, tears slowly began to emerge. And these tears became uncontrollable sobbing. And things that I thought and felt that I didn't even realize began to emerge. I talked about this frustration with a friend and I wanted our relationship to heal. And then I kind of blurted out and my anger towards God that he hasn't brought the kind of healing that I hoped for. That I'd been praying that God would bring healing in this relationship and I expected him to and he hadn't done it yet and I was angry and frustrated towards God. But because I didn't want to feel frustration and anger towards God, I decided to put up a barrier to my emotional life and God. Started to feel apathetic towards God, a sense of disengaged self in my relationship with God because I didn't want to go into those hard places. And as I sobbed uncontrollably in the context of friendship, I was forced to go places where I would probably not have gone otherwise. That the context of friendship is one of those places that helps us to engage honestly with how we feel and the ways that it may be impacting our relationship with God. It's one of those places where we experience healing. James, who is Jesus' brother, says this in a letter that he wrote. He said, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We are invited to open up honestly, directly in our relationship with God, but especially in the context of community and with others. A second way we're invited to engage in times of spiritual apathy is experiencing God's mercy the very bottom of his life, the bottom of the sea, at the bottom of a whale's stomach, Jonah experiences God's mercy. We see that in verses six through seven. He says, to the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. At the very bottom of his life, Jonah has a profound experience of God's mercy. And places of suffering and difficulty can and have for me been profound places of God's mercy. But where are the places that we go, not just in the difficult times, but in the everyday times to experience God's mercy? Where are some of those places where you go day in and day out to meet with God and to experience his mercy? For me, one of those places that I've learned has been worship music. And primarily because I'm such a cognitive person, the practice of singing and worshiping with my voice gets me out of my head stops me from critically engaging with the words and their theology and biblical context and simply engages my heart. And it causes me not to ask, what was God doing back then? But what is God doing right now? What is the experience of God's mercy in the very midst of what I'm going through? What are the places in your life where you go to experience God's mercy? Could be a regular reading of scripture for you could be looking at art, could be going for a prayer walk in God's beautiful creation. But we need to have places where again and again we are experiencing God's mercy, not just at the bottom places of our life, but every day of our lives. It's like a relationship. What are the places where you go on date with God, where you simply go to meet with him with no agenda in mind, but simply to experience and listen and be present to him. Anyone who's married will know that not every date you go on is powerful and amazing. And so too, not every time we go to meet with God is powerful and amazing either. But we need to have places where again and again and again, we simply go to meet with God's mercy. Now, throughout the story of Scripture and here in Jonah, God's mercy is not meant to be something that we just hold on to ourselves, but something that's offered as a gift to others. And anyone who's ever been involved in any kind of serving knows that when we serve others, when we give away our faith and our life, it's actually a gift where we too receive. Josh and Michaela shared earlier about the ways that they have been impacted by their Creole leaders, And no doubt, if those Creole leaders were up here sharing as well, they would tell you about the ways that they too have experienced God's love and mercy for them in the ways that they have been serving. Today I've asked uh, Miriam Tang to come up and share a little bit about her experience. She's one of our 10th Kids volunteers at Mount Pleasant. And I want to give her an opportunity to share from the other side, what has been the impact of serving our 10th Kids on her faith. And so let me ask you a question. It's right here. Sorry, Miriam. How has serving our 10th kids helped your faith to come alive?
1: Okay. Serving at 10th kids has really helped me um, grow my trust in God um, and being effort, having it as uh, just effortlessly as possible. Um, when I think about the kids just uh, walking through the door, they just saunter in. They just like throw off their clothes, <laughs> or not their clothes, their jackets, and or else they'll just hand it to you without looking at you sometimes, and it, they're just very, very carefree, and that's something that I I've learned, to just, you know, walk with purpose, be carefree, and just know that God is good. And just when I'm with the children, I get to see the world through their eyes, and how how everything is so new, everything is, they're full of wonder and full of awe at all their, whatever they see, like the dollhouses or whatever, and they have stories behind everything. And it just um, ignites that in me. Um, And also, yeah, they're just so quick to forgive and quick to learn, and they speak very, very, very candidly. And so just looking, just being with them kind of highlights the fruit of the spirit and what I know that I need to learn or even ask God for. And the children's way, yeah, they tell their stories. It's, they inspire me to carry that attitude of wonder and awe and see God in all of the occasions. And just their passion behind their memories and what they did in the past week or just random thoughts, they remind me of God's goodness and to put it in the forefront of my mind. As an adult, it's easy for me to skip past all the good and just focus on the negative or worry and meditate on that. Um, But being with these kids, they've um, encouraged me to expand my faith uh, and make space for that in any situation. And I observe... Yeah, just observing through their eyes, it's, as long as you kind of humble yourself and learn and look at them and see how they are, um, it helps me to see myself in God's eyes as well. So, yeah.
0: One thing that Miriam shared about is seeing the world through God's eyes and experiencing that sense of wonder. Really, when we begin to give away our faith, especially to young people, to the next generation, it's not a way that we just serve others, but we, in turn, are served ourselves. And if that's something that you're interested in, serving with the next generation, Abe said you can fill out a Connect card and write on there to serve with kids or Creo. Jesus in Matthew's Gospel says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Did you notice that? where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not where your heart is, there your treasure will be also, but where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're invited to give our treasure to God. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Chicago for a leadership conference and had the opportunity to attend church on a Sunday at Trinity United Church on the south side of Chicago which was this beautiful, vibrant black church. And I got to listen to Dr. Reverend Otis Moss III preach. And during his sermon, in this unbelievable preacher's voice, he was sharing about the Israelites and how in the Old Testament they would take a a sacrificial animal, they would sacrifice it, and they would splash a little bit of blood against the altar as a way of sacrificing but also as a way of giving their best to God. And then this unbelievable preacher's voice, he said, we need to give a little blood on the altar. We need to leave a little blood on the altar. That we're not invited to sacrifice, that Jesus was our atoning sacrifice, but we are still invited to give our very best and to leave that for God. Friends, in Vancouver, One of our great treasures is our time. Over and over and over again, I hear people say how busy they are, how full their life is, and how they wish they had time for other things. One of our great treasures is our time. Tenth church, we are invited to leave a little time on the altar. You want to have a transformed life and faith? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We are invited to leave a little time on the altar. We are invited to give our very best to God and for others. If you want to grow in your life of faith, give it away. Give away your time and energy for the sake of others. It doesn't have to be here at 10th Kids. It doesn't have to be with Creo or Kids or the production team or the Connection team. It can be serving on a strata in your neighborhood. Or mentoring kids at the community center. Wherever it is, we need to leave a little time on the altar to give away something that is valuable to us as Vancouverites and leave it for the sake of God and for others. We are invited to leave a little time on the altar. God wants us not to have a dull, disengaged relationship with him, but he wants us to come honestly towards him in confession wherever we are to engage with him, to experience God's mercy through places like worship music, reading scripture, going outside and enjoying his creation, but especially by leaving a bit of ourselves on the altar, by giving our time, our energy for the sake of others. The story of Jonah is a little bit of a case study of what's at stake. What's at stake if we continue to have a a dull, disengaged heart towards God and others? When you usually read uh, Sunday Sunday school versions of Jonah, Jonah's prayer is almost the end of what they share. They usually share that Jonah repented and went and shared his sermon to the Ninevites. But they usually don't share the end, so I want to share the full thing with you. After Jonah has this prayer with God in the belly of the the fish, he does in fact do what God asked him to do. Uh, The fish vomits him out and he goes to Nineveh and he prays what I think is the shortest sermon in all of scripture. In the original language, it's only four words. And I don't think this is because Jonah is a master of brevity. I think Jonah, even though he's had this turn in the belly of the whale is still disengaged in his relationship with God. He's going through the motions, but his heart's not really in it. And so he says, God, I'm going to go to Nineveh and I'm going to preach a sermon like you asked, and then I'm going to leave. And that's exactly what he does. He preaches a 4 sermon, does a mic drop in the, center, in the center of the city, and he walks away. He literally walks away. He leaves the city, And he goes up onto a hill, as we can see on this image here, and he waits. He waits for God to blast Nineveh. He thinks that God is going to blow up Nineveh as an act of his vengeance and his destruction. That Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire was one of the cruelest, harshest empires of the time. And Jonah's people were at the mercy of them. But the exact opposite happens. God doesn't blow up Nineveh like Jonah expects. Instead, Jonah becomes one of the most effective preachers in all of Scripture. With a four-word sermon, he manages not only to convert the king and the people, but we're told that all of the cows repented in the city. (laughs) I have no idea how you find out if a cow repents. but we're told that the whole city turns from a life of justice and evil, and they turn towards God. And rather than God blowing up the city of Nineveh, the people experience this profound experience of God's mercy. And Jonah, rather than being full of joy and life, is bitter. If I had preached a four-letter sermon and all of you had a profound heart life change, man, that would be a good day. Jeremy, you're a preacher too. It'd be a great day for us. It'd be a good day for you too. But imagine preaching a four-letter sermon and at the end, everyone's heart and life are changed and you're bitter and angry and disengaged. And Jonah is bitter and angry even though God has done exactly what he said he would do because God didn't work the ways that he wanted and this is a bit of a case study of what's at stake for us, friends, because at the end of my life, when I find out that God didn't work in the ways that I wanted him to, I don't want to be sitting on a hill under a tree, bitter, angry, and disengaged towards God and others. I want to have a heart and life and faith that is alive and vibrant in joy towards God and others. And we can go through our lives checking the boxes of faith without our hearts really being in it. And we're invited today to put our hearts on the altar. Whether you feel today you need a heart surgery, or maybe you feel like the problem's a little bit deeper, and you need a heart transplant, and there's good news for you. God in Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, shares these words To Israel, a people whose hearts have turned hard towards God and towards others, here's what he says I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. It's God who gives us a reordered heart and a new heart. A heart that isn't hard and disengaged or embittered, but a heart that's soft. A heart that experiences joy and hurts and sadnesses, but is fully alive and engaged in our relationship with God and others. And if you're here today and you feel like you need a heart surgery or a heart transplant, I invite you to pray with me that we wouldn't become people at the end of our lives who are embittered and disengaged, but people who are filled with life and joy in our relationship with God, with others. And so I'm gonna lead us in a prayer that models a little bit Jonah's prayer, an invitation to honesty, to experience God's mercy, but even further, to be filled with the spirit and to be given a new heart. Let's pray together. Jesus, wherever we are today, whether we're feeling dull and disengaged in our life with you, or angry or frustrated, or filled with joy in life, or we just don't care or have no idea where we are, we are here. We are here and present and open towards you. And I pray today that in this unique place that you have us in, that we would have a profound experience of your mercy. That you would fill us with your spirit. That Jesus, you would come to us and into us in and through the spirit. That you would give us new hearts. New hearts that aren't hard and distant and dull towards you and others, but ones that are soft, filled with joy and life and tears and fullness towards you and others. I pray that you would do a work in us that only you can do. Give us new hearts, God. Jesus, we trust that you can
1: and do do this. Amen.